I looked at Liam and said, are you going to dance? He's like, (laughs) it is great to be around God's word again this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn please to Luke chapter three. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called this one, whose son is this? You know, if you're new to Sovereign Grace or if you've been around a while, you will hopefully know by now that this book has been written by Luke. He's seeking to compile a narrative on all the things of Jesus. And he's writing it primarily to Theophilus and indeed us, that we may have surety concerning the things we've been taught. You see, the Christian faith is not based on someone's vivid imagination. It is based on history and fact. And that's exactly what Luke is trying to help us see here. He's been around, he's interviewed literally hundreds of people to find out what exactly went on. Who was Jesus? What did he do? What happened? I want to know from first-hand experience. And this gospel is the fruit of his labors. Today then, we're going to be reading from Luke 3 verse 21 to the end of verse 38. And Luke is going to be seeking to help us see the identity of Jesus a most important fact in this great gospel of grace. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahan, the son of Ezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Marth, the son of Matthias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cosm, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Jerim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, and the son of Anai, the son of Ezron, the son of Heres, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Seruk, the son of Roy, the son of Peleg, the son of Eba, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Bethuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Malalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
I bet you are excited about this. <laughs> Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do ask you for your help this morning. Lord, your word is God-breathed. It's here for a purpose. So, Lord, did you open our eyes that we may see the purpose of this this morning, that we may behold the glories of all that you're seeking to teach us here. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, the Bible, as you look at it as a whole, really is, I believe, the greatest book ever written. It has more tension and twists and turns than any known suspense thriller. It is more informative and accurate than any history or science book. It's more creative than any book of science fiction. It is more loving than any romantic novel. It is full of depth and variety of subjects and as a result is more complete than any known library. This book is amazing. And part of the reason why it's so amazing is because this book, self-proclaimed, is alive and active. In Hebrews 4 verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This word is God-breathed. It's ultimately breathed out by God and is useful for training and teaching and correction so that the man of God may be complete in every good work. We read this book, but in so many ways it reads us. It is an incredible book which is living and active. There are times when we can be reading the Bible, whether it be on our own or together as a, as a church, when I think this book can really come alive, can't it? We're just thrilled. We can feel our heart almost pounding because we're just so amazed that this is God in the way he's revealing himself to us. And yet there can be other times when we come across something in the Bible and we're like, man, this is, can we just turn the page? For honest, there can be things in the Bible that do not dazzle us, that do not amaze us. In fact, they appear on the face of it to be somewhat dry and boring, do they not? But my friends, sometimes in Scripture... The richest nuggets and the biggest jewels lie hidden in the deepest caves. It's only when we get our pickaxe out and shovel out and we cry out to God for his grace that we may behold the wonders of his word, that we get to see why this is here. And I submit to you, this genealogy and baptism is one of those moments. When you get your pickaxe out and shovel out, you see something incredible, which is why this is here. Because what we learn through this text is simply this. We learn that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And so Jesus alone is fully able to care for us. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so alone is fully able to care for us. See, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's my prayer that he would reveal himself through this today. That you would see him for all he truly is, as fully God and fully man, and how he's come on the rescue mission for you. And that even as I preach then, you may turn from your sin and put your faith in him as Lord and Savior and know the glory of what it is to be saved. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, I pray that you would see just how incredible he has been to you and is to you. For whatever's going on in your life, you have one who completely relates to you. Fully God and fully man. Three points in this morning. Number one, the divinity of Jesus. Number two, the humanity 
of Jesus. And then number three, what it all means as we seek to bring it together and I seek to explain to you exactly why Dr. Luke has written this here for us. Number one, then, the divinity of Jesus. This is what Luke is trying to point our attention to in verses 21 and 22. Let's read that again together. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You know, prior to this moment in the Gospel of Luke, particularly in chapter 3, John has been the star of the show. John is amazing. If you looked on the front page of the Palestinian Times every day, there's John. He is the superstar of the day. Everybody wants to be baptized by John. It says in the other Gospels that they're coming out from all of Jerusalem and all of Judea. That is hundreds of thousands of people. And they're all coming out to be baptized by John into this baptism of repentance as they get ready for the coming of the king. But then in verse 21, attention shifts to this lone figure from Nazareth. Nazareth, an obscure town of around 200 people or so. An obscure town, it was said, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And yet after John announces in verses 16 and 17, the coming of the one mightier than he, the coming of the one whose sandals he is unworthy to untie, the coming of the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, we then see this one lone figure, Jesus of Nazareth, arrive at the Jordan and begin to proceed to get into the waters of the Jordan so that he can get baptized by John. It is a shocking scene and a surprising scene because what we should be wondering right now is why is Jesus getting baptized at all? Why is he, the Holy One, getting baptized? Why is he, the Mighty One, one mightier than John, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, why would he be getting into the waters and subject himself to John's baptism? You've got to remember, Jesus is the Holy One. He is sinless in all things. He has no sin to repent from. So why would he get baptized into a baptism of repentance? Why would he do that? Surely at the start of Jesus' public ministry, which is really what's going on here, You would expect this moment to come with trumpets and fanfare. Everybody to be looking on, applauding. This is him. But instead, Luke is helping us see that this moment actually happened in relative obscurity. The crowd barely seemed to have even noticed. And Jesus in this moment isn't identifying them with John. He's identifying with sinful humanity. He's identifying with you and with me. James Denny effectively describes this scene this way when he writes as follows. He says, we might have expected that where the work of God was being done through the prophetic ministry of John, that Jesus would be present. Certainly we would have expected that, but surely we should have found him at John's side, confronting the people and assisting the prophet to proclaim the word of God. Yet nothing is more true to the character of Jesus and to the spirit in which he carries through his mission than the reality that he appears not at John's side, but among the people who came to be baptized. 
His entrance then, like his whole work from beginning to end, was an act of loving communion with us in our misery. For he numbered himself with the transgressors and made the burden of our sins his own. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. He had no guilt. He had no sin. But he steps into the waters of the Jordan in this moment to identify with the very people he's came to save. In a right sense, the prophecy that he would be numbered among the transgressors has already now begun to be fulfilled. You would have thought that Jesus' public ministry would have begun with trumpets and banners and fanfare, but it doesn't. It begins with him making his way into the waters of the River Jordan to identify with sinful mankind. And in doing so, he also makes his first steps towards Calvary, where he will give his life away for the very sins that he has now started to join himself with right there in the rivers. You know, what is remarkable about this scene is not only that Jesus was getting baptized, but the crowd sort of tepid and low-key response. I mean, you'd think that this would be the moment. Jesus, the maker of heaven, is getting baptized. You would think that there would be chapters written on this. Instead, we just read, and when Jesus had also been baptized. Is that it? (laughs) And Dr. Luke wants to help us see, before the crowd, that was it. No one cared. No one's particularly interested. It's no big deal. It is a low-key moment. And yet heaven's response in this moment is far from low-key. The crowd have not been observant, but the heavens have been wonderfully observant. The heavens will now respond in pride. And the heavens will respond loudly. And what we discover then are three incredible signs right now that point to the reality of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Look with me again. It says, and we, when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Three things that take place that just are designed to point us to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. As the savior, number one, comes up from the waters of the Jordan. And as he starts praying to the father, the first thing he sees are the heavens being torn open. Now, I want you to think in this moment, cataclysmic moment. This is not like a small, out for a nice day, break in the clouds. Oh, I feel a bit of sun. Isn't this nice? Ah, That is not what's going on here. It, It literally means tearing or rendering. It's like me taking a garment and actually ripping it apart. That's what it means here in the Greek. So the heavens are being torn open. Think parting of the Red Sea in this moment. The heavens are open. The sky is open. They are having a glimpse of heaven before them. You know, this was a tearing and a rending <clears throat> that was actually prayed for 700 years earlier back in Isaiah 64. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah is crying out to God, having observed the state of mankind and of Israel. And he says, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Literally, oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. 700 years later, boom, the father responds. The heavens have come down. This is the Son of God. And so the heavens tear open. And then 
we see the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. So we see the heavens torn open. We then see the Spirit descending on him like a dove as he receives fresh empowerment for his mission and ministry to come. The Spirit then that once hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 now descends on Jesus to empower him for his mission and ministry to come. But Jesus will once again bring order out of chaos. He will once again bring, bring life where there is nothing. And then at the pinnacle of it all, we see the unmistakable voice of the Father now crying out. As we read in verse 22, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. What child doesn't want to hear their father say, I'm proud of you, and I love you? And that's exactly what we see the father doing right now to Jesus Christ. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, it was our Josh's birthday. He turned 19, and Liam came in my room that morning I said, Dad, I've got something to tell you. And I'm like, okay, you know, crack on, tell me. And he's like, I've got this speech for Josh as I give him the card. And he said, I want to try it out on you, see what you think. And I said, all right, let's hear it. And it was all about that you are the greatest brother I've ever had and always wanted. I love you so much. He said, what do you think? And I'm like, holding back the tears. I'm like, it's not bad, it's good. It's good. But in that moment, as a dad, as I think about my two sons, you think, you know what? You are my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased, darling. That's just a dim reflection of how the father feels about his son in this moment. For he has dwelt with his son in eternity past. He has always had perfect unity and joy with his son. And then 30 years ago, when he was sent on the greatest rescue mission ever told, Something that the son wanted to do out of love for the world. The father has been looking on intently as the son was sent to the earth, was knitted together in his mother Mary's womb, was then born into the world. And the father has intently been looking on for the last 30 years, seeing just how incredible his son is. For he has obeyed the law in perfection. He's honored his mom better than anybody ever lived. He's been a better friend than anybody could have imagined. He is the epitome of joy and grace and patience and strength and gentleness. And in this moment, as Jesus gets baptized at the start of his ministry that will culminate in the cross that he's always been sent for, in this moment, the heavens are rendered and the Father speaks in, you you, darling, are my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. It's such a tender moment, isn't it? It's such a glorious moment. What a moment for the son this must have been. Just after this, he's going to be led out into the wilderness. He's going to be tempted by the devil who is going to do everything he can for the next three years to try and knock him off his journey. What a privilege and what a joy it must have been him the night before, to hear, you are my son, and you I'm well pleased. Son, I'm proud of you. I love you. Son, keep going. What a moment that must have been for him, and what a moment it is for us. See, although the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, we see it in those verses, don't we? The son is praying. 
The Holy Spirit comes and descends. The Father responds, all three of them in one verse. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But more than that, Dr. Luke helps us see just exactly who Jesus is. Namely, he is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. God's own Son. And having pulled the curtain back on that for us, he then very carefully takes us to the very next point in the very next verses after it. Which is my point two. The humanity of Jesus. He's just helped us see his divinity. Now immediately, he wants to help us see his humanity. Now I'm not going to read it all through again. But I am going to give us a taste. Look at verse 23 through to 25. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, and the story goes on. Now, if we were honest, many of us in the room probably get to genealogies like this. They seem somewhat dry, uninteresting, irrelevant, and we quickly go, blah, blah, son of, yep, 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 yep. Okay, straight to the temptation. As if there's nothing really to see here. Luke must have just been filling space so his gospel wasn't shorter than the other ones. It's so easy to think of these verses as uninteresting and dry, but when you see the purpose of the genealogy, When you begin to dig into that cave, it's then that you see that this genealogy is indeed a diamond and a jewel. See, what is not clear is why this genealogy of Jesus is different to the genealogy in Matthew's gospel. It's not clear exactly why that is the case, but it is the case. They're different. In Luke's gospel, for example, it's given in reverse order. Whereas in Matthew's gospel, it starts with Abraham and comes down. But more than that, the genealogy in Luke's gospel and the genealogy in Matthew's gospel are almost entirely different in names between Joseph and David. So why is that? Because aren't they the same genealogy? No. They're actually trying to do two different things. But it's not exactly clear why they are different. People way smarter than me that I read about in the week when I'm preparing for messages explain that the genealogies are different for one of two different reasons. One theory or idea is that what we're actually looking at here is the genealogy of Jesus, but through Mary. Some people say that that's why it actually says in verse 23 that being the son as was supposed of Joseph. That he's emphasizing the reality that, you know what, Joseph was the legal father, but he wasn't the biological father. So let me talk to you about Mary. Her dad was Heli, and so on and so on. So some explain that that's probably what was happening. What we're actually looking at is the legal, you know, if you go to the government headquarters, the legal realities of where this bloodline goes. Others say that, no, I think what actually happens is that in Matthew's gospel, The genealogy is seeking to emphasize the royal line of succession. Whereas in Luke's gospel, he's seeking to emphasize the biological and legal line of succession. Two very different things. 
So in Matthew's gospel, he is trying to point out that he really is through the line of David, the royal line of David. And so well, the way you would do that is you wouldn't just go strictly biological. You just go through to the head of each household, which is true of Matthew. Whereas some would say in Luke's gospel, they're not worried about the head of the household. They're literally, who was your dad? And so you just write that. You know what? I don't know which one it is. I have no clue. Take a pick. It's not clear exactly which one of those it is. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because what is super clear is why this genealogy is here. And why it is here, my friends, having been skillfully placed here by Dr. Luke, immediately back on the back of Jesus' baptism, proving that he's the Son of God. Why this is placed right here is to help us see that Jesus is not only fully God, he's fully man. And I'm going to show you through a genealogy. Everybody has a genealogy. Everybody has mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles and fathers and forefathers and ancestors. And Dr. Luke says, "Uh uh-huh, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus's. Let me tell you his family tree. The reality of a genealogy is you learn about somebody's humanity through it. And this is a reality that is vital to our salvations. Without Jesus being fully God and fully man, none of us in the room can get saved. It's not possible. So what Dr. Luke is trying to help us see here in writing to Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. He's helping him see, hey, listen what I found out. He's definitely fully God and he's definitely fully man. And that's going to be super important because as the message of the gospel and salvation comes to bear, he has to be both of those things. See, let me explain. Without Jesus being fully God, He could never have saved us. He could never have saved you or me. Why? Because quite frankly, he would have never been sinless. In Romans 3 verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's true, everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, when you just examine some names in this genealogy of Jesus Christ, you realize it's definitely true. I mean, there are names in here that we think of as the greats. But when you examine their lives, you realize they're not as great as would first appear. So, for example, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah, David, all heroes of the faith, right? Yeah, kind of. David, a man after God's own heart, a wonderful man. Apart from the fact he committed adultery... Got this lady pregnant and then to try and cover it up, had her husband killed. Ooh. Abraham, wonderful man. One of the foundations of the faith. The only problem is he was also a liar. Consistently lied about his wife to try and get him out of trouble. Oh, she's my sister. It nearly, got, it nearly wrecked everything. A couple of days later, uh, yeah, she's my sister. Oh, no, wrong! He lies consistently to try and get out of trouble. Jacob, wonderful man, but a liar and a cheat all the way through his life. He does so many things where he's just cheating. He's undermining things and cheating again and again. 
They're all right here. All right here in the genealogy of Jesus. Listen, left to ourselves, no one is coming that is truly sinless. No one. Everybody falls short somewhere. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the only way any of us can get saved through a sinless one, it's going to take a miracle. That's going to take a miracle of a virgin birth. And that's going to take the miracle of someone being empowered by the Holy Spirit throughout their entire life to live in response to God's law in perfection. It's going to take a miracle. And what Dr. Luke is helping us see is it will take a miracle and he's here. He's right here. This is the Son of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living a sinless life. Without being fully God, Jesus could have never saved us because he never would have been sinless. He would have fallen just like everybody else in this story. And just like you. And just like me. But without being fully man, he could have never saved us either. Because he never would have been like us. And in God's word, you get to see very quickly that the only way of salvation of people is for a person to stand in their place. A human, just like them. We read it in Hebrews 2 verse 17, for example. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and great high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's profound. He had to be made like, made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus, God incarnate, had to become a human in every respect. Why? Because it was the only way that he could give his life as a propitiation, i.e. an atoning sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice in the place of mankind. He has to be just like them to do that. Without him being made in human form, there is no story. God himself can't bleed for a start. Only humans bleed. He had to become just like us to be able to stand in our place. It's echoed then in 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6. We read, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Do you see it? The only way he could give his life away as a ransom for all. The only way he could stand between God and man is by becoming just like us. Without him being just like us, there is no story of salvation. He simply wouldn't have been like us. He could have never represented us as a sinless sacrifice. He has to be fully God. And he has to be fully man. You know, maybe going into this message, you heard me reading a very dry and long genealogy. And immediately you think, I have no idea what's going to be here for us. Well, as I said before, sometimes the most dry caves are the places where the greatest jewels can be found. Dr. Luke is helping us see here, this Jesus that you follow, he's fully God. And he's fully man. He's both. And you're going to need both to get saved. So point three, finally, in closing, what does it all mean? What does it 
all mean. And there are two things that I want to help you see that it means. Number one, I want you to see from this text that Jesus really can save. And he can. He's the only one qualified in the entire universe who has ever lived. Who is actually qualified to save people as the one who alone is fully God and fully man. See, the Bible's clear that God actually made us. It was God that knitted us together in our mother's womb. And he made us to find our identity and our joy and peace with him. Just like Jesus has dwelt with God as the son of God in perfect unity from eternity past. God made us to do exactly the same thing. And Adam and Eve enjoyed that for like what seems like a few days. They dwelt in the garden with God in perfect unity. They're chilling out with God, literally. And yet they rejected that. They decided, I I don't really want to follow you. I'm pleased with the garden. And to be honest, the garden seems more attractive to me than you. So they rejected God. They like the kingdom. They just don't want the king. And so they were removed from the garden. They were put out from the garden. God is holy and righteous and can't just put up with rebellion like that. Otherwise, it besmirches his own glory. So he puts them out of the garden. But he promises even then there will be a way back into the garden. And yet as the storyline of scripture just continues, you're like, how are we ever going to get back in? Because mankind seems to be going from bad to worse. It just seems to be getting more and more broken, more and more further away. Just like Adam fell, we too have followed suit, haven't we? We too have rejected God in our lives. We too have moved away from God all our lives. And yet God promised us, although he could have left us, he promises us, I'm going to come for you. This is what we read in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's amazing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of woman. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So that it might be possible for us to once again experience what Jesus is by nature. We may get to experience through adoption. He made it possible before the Lord for us to come back to God, to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven of our sin, to be adopted into his very family. But Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love that. And it's true. God made us. We screwed up. He came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. When the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. His son was Jesus. It's the very thing we read about in the Gospels. And through faith in Jesus Christ, he's your Lord and Savior. He made it possible for you and I to become what he is by nature. What we get to do is be adopted into the family of God. Something that he experienced before there was even time. My friends, I want to encourage you then. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it today. The Bible makes it clear that if you put your faith in him as Lord and Savior, then you will be returned to where you began, namely a son and child of God. The only way that's possible is by putting our faith in the new and better Adam. And his name was Jesus. 
Jesus is the only one who ever lived that was truly God and truly man, which is why he tells us no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the mediator. And what we also learn then here by Dr. Luke is this, number two. Not only that Jesus really can save, but number two, Jesus really can understand. He can understand you. And he can wonderfully relate. Job 5 verse 7, we read, As surely as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. True. Troubles always come our way, don't they? Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, man is born to trouble. And we face trials of many kinds, do we not? You go to the doctors. You don't feel quite right, probably no big deal. But you go to the doctors and then they tell you information that you're aware is going to be life-changing for you. And you start to walk through a trial that is really, really difficult and painful. The girl that you'd been hoping to marry, you're super excited about her, you are in love with her, and then one evening, totally out of the blue, she gives you the, it's not you, it's me speech. And you realize, I'm done. I put all my eggs in this basket, this was the girl I want to marry, and she doesn't want to be with me. And you're not 20 anymore. You're older than that. And so you just start to think, it's probably it. I'm going to be by myself. How am I going to manage that? What about the job? The job that you've been working in for years. It's providing well for your family and your home. And then you go in the office one day and they say, hey, just to let you know, we're going to be letting you go. And it's COVID. There's no jobs anywhere. And you wonder how... What am I going to do? How am I going to manage? How how am I going to feed my family and my kids? Or the friendship or the marriage relationship that just starts to go south. And you hadn't seen it coming like at all. You were getting on in this friendship or getting on in this marriage. You thought things were great. But then something happens at some point and you're aware it's really not as great as I thought. And then the more you begin to unpack it, the more you realize it isn't great at all. And I don't even know what to do. Everything I keep trying doesn't seem to be working. I thought we were close, but we don't seem to be as close as I thought. Or the child. You've been watching them grow up maybe even for many years, and they are changing. Oh my, they're changing. But sadly, what they're changing into is not for the better. And however hard you try to show them Jesus, however hard you try to show them how it is going to go well for them, it just does not seem to be working. Sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. And the challenge that we all face in our humanity, I think, is that in that moment we always feel alone and isolated. And our instant disposition is no one understands. No one's been through what I've been through. No one's walking what I've gone through. Even when we hear stories that are like identical to ours, we still think, yeah, but they're different. We feel alone. And we feel isolated. Well, my friends, I have good news for you. Your feelings are deceiving you. 
Because you are never alone. There is one who wonderfully understands you. Far better than you could have ever asked or imagined. And we read about him here in Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Listen and pay careful attention to these words. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How wonderful. Whatever it is you're walking through, Whatever trial it is that you're walking through where you feel alone and isolated and have that distinctness of no one's going to understand. And whenever that occurs, and listen, it's not if you get trials. It's always a matter of when you get trials. Trials are a part of life. But whatever the trial and whenever the trial, I want to urge you, go to Jesus. Because he really does understand. He's able to sympathize with your weaknesses because he knows exactly what it's like to feel that as a human. But more than that, he continued on as a human and was tempted just as we are, but one. And so now we get to go to the throne of grace, Jesus' throne himself, and he's there to greet us with grace and mercy. You are never alone. You always have one who fully understands. My friend, sometimes in scripture, the richest nuggets and the greatest jewels lie hidden in the deepest caves. And this, I think, is one of those moments. It's not just a baptism and a dry genealogy. It's a piece of scripture where we learn that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And so Jesus alone is fully able to care for us. It's a wonderful truth of God. So may we live in the good of it. And may we enjoy his mercy and his grace. For each and every one of us in the room, whatever our circumstance, may we all run to him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it does contain within it so many jewels and diamonds and nuggets that can be life-changing for us. And Lord, I thank you for the way you speak to us from your word. It's your desire to not keep it concealed from us. It's your desire to open our eyes to the realities of what it's saying. And Lord, I thank you that in you, whatever the circumstance we face, in you there is always sweet, sweet peace. You are God and you are man. You understand our ways, you number the hairs on our head and you know exactly what it's like to walk in our shoes. So Lord, may we run to you, the only one who really understands. And in you, may we all find a sweet peace. In Jesus' name.